This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Okay, we have a terrible internet connection. All the quality settings are set to the lowest. So let's do this. My name is Jim. This is Jim Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. Mike Stone, I hope this internet connection lasts. <laughs> is everything good on your side? It is so far, yeah. It, it you know, it's slow at times, but it, it's working. All right, well, let's do this. <laughs> we were just talking a moment ago um that you have the world's most complicated website name <laughs> i do <laughs> yeah i i've heard it pronounced so many different ways uh dr cowan's versions are my favorite virology or something but um, <laughs> so, so so just spell it for the for those listening sure v-i-r-o-l-i-e-g-y <laughs> that's that's where that's where everybody goes wrong because you don't know how to say virology it's like this weird yeah. tongue twister i just say virology just kind of phonetically but you can say virology you know enhance it that way but whatever works it looks good it looks good it's a it's, it's great it's a great visual <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah I thought when I when I first put that out there, I'm like, everyone's going to think this is stupid. I, I don't know why I came up with that name, but uh, feedback's been good besides the mispronunciation. Well, to balance out the name, it's probably the best website on the internet for an overview of the field of virology. What is virology and why are we talking about it? Well, it's a study of uh, a fictional entity known as a virus. Um, you know, it started off as an idea first because they uh, were trying to prove bacteria cause disease, um, but they weren't always successful at that. They were finding, you know, different bacteria like tuberculosis and all these things in healthy people as well as sick people, which unfortunately gave us the whole asymptomatic carrier deal. But in any case, so they started theorizing, well, if bacteria is not making people sick, there must be something smaller than bacteria. There, there must be some sort of entity that can pass through filters and make someone sick. And so it started off as an idea. It's not something they observed, you know, which is part of the scientific method. You have to observe a natural phenomenon. They, they couldn't observe these tiny invisible particles. They just assumed that they were there and then created a, a, a field of, I can't even call it science, basically pseudoscience around trying to prove that these invisible entities were making people sick. Um, how, why? Why did they do that? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know the exact motives behind it. To me, it's um, a form of control for one thing, which we're seeing now, you know, mm. with all the different the ways that they can control a population based just on the fear of the idea of a virus. Um, but at that time, uh, you know, with the history going back, at least here in the U.S., we, it was heavily, our medical system was heavily influenced by the Rockefellers, you know, big oil, uh, you know, the money coming from there. And so uh, I think part of it, too, was to cover up the, the dangerous side effects of their products. You know, no, it's not our, our oil, our chemicals, all these things that we're putting into the atmosphere or, you know, in your food, different things like that. It's this 
other thing that's going and causing you disease. And so they basically hijacked our medical system uh, throughout uh, basically anyone that was looking at a holistic approach, looking at, you know, environmental toxins, um, emotional stressors, things like that. And it became more about this invisible particle that is causing disease. I was fairly red-pilled uh, last year when I, I read the book called Bachampo Pasteur, mm. uh, which is which is a biography of the two scientists. And it really, really challenged everything that I thought I knew because in there you see how the Rockefellers were funding um, Pasteur eventually. Yeah. Um, and but they didn't know about viruses, I mean, so this is a, a much newer phenomenon, and we'll we'll come to that in a second uh, because they were right. looking at, at at other germs. But yes, they're trying. Yeah. But okay, so what is a virus? The actual definition of what it is. Uh, yes, I know, well, let's uh, let's start there. Yeah, yeah the doc, Dr. Bailey, um, both of them, Dr. Sim and Mark Bailey, do have a great definition of it's an intracellular parasite that um, hijacks, you know, the host cell and is supposed to replicate um, within a, a person. Um, they're not, uh, you know, technically they're not alive and they're not dead. They're just this intracellular par parasite that hijacks your cells, uh, breaks in there, uh, takes over the genetics and creates copies of itself, goes throughout your body, and then you are able to transfer that on through your, uh, you know, spit, saliva, aerosol, whatever means that they say that you're going to infect someone through that. Okay. Now, what is the contemporary definition? The contemporary definition? I mean, that is basically what it is. It's just supposed to be a, a, an, or a, an, an organism that, uh, or a parasite, an intercellular parasite that hijacks your body. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's literally what it is. It's, it's not alive. It's not dead. It's just yeah. uh, a substance or an, an entity, a parasite that can go in and, and hijack your, your own cells to create more copies of itself. Uh, but this is unlike other germs, right? Um, as far as I know, are you talking about like bacteria and things like that? No, I mean, bacteria, you know, they, they say that it will get inside and, and grow, but uh, we basically carry them all with us at all times. So it's not something that's coming from outside. Viruses are supposedly coming from outside, you know, uh, an outside and external source and coming into us and hijacking our, our, our own body. Um, I guess they do say some bacteria, you know, if you eat them or you contact them, you get them on your hand and get them in. But mm. um, even those, they can typically find them within us. You know, you can make the case that that bacteria is always within us. Viruses, they say no; those are outside of the body. There's something that you don't yeah. don't have within you. It yeah, just... Bashamp argued that 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 uh, germs come from inside the cells. Yeah, like are you talking about like the pleomorphism um, and how they the bacteria would change uh, shape and form yeah. depending on the environment of the body? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's with within us. We we have these. Um, you know, bacteria kind of get a bad rep because they're essentially the way um, I look at it is they're the, the cleanup crew. You know, they're the, the firemen on the scene of the crime. That's the best example I've heard of it is that um, they, you know, they get blamed for the fire because they're the first ones on the scene trying to put it out. But there was something else that caused that fire for them to show up 
and to try and um, fix the situation. So it's, there's a little difference in that. Why is virology a pseudoscience then? Well, in to me, it's because they don't follow the scientific method. I mean, if you're if you're not following the scientific method, you're not uh, you know they don't have the the independent variable, which would be um, you know the purified isolated particles assumed to be a virus. They don't have those in order to very manipulate to show that they actually cause the effect, which is the dependent variable. So if you don't have this, they they cannot prove cause and effect, which um, is part of the, the the definition of the scientific you know science is using the scientific method. Pseudoscience does not use the scientific method. So that's technically why it's pseudoscience. They don't have the thing physically existing in order to very manipulate it in order to show that it causes effects. You know the the, the, the disease that they say it claims or they claim that it does. What is then the scientific method? Well, it starts with, uh, you know, observing a natural, natural phenomena. And so uh, you can't observe a virus. You know, you can't observe uh, these invisible particles going into someone and, and invading their body, hijacking their cells and making a person sick. The only thing you can observe is someone being sick. But then you just, you know, create hypothesis theories on what could potentially be causing it. And so in order to determine cause and effect, they have to have this, you know, the independent variable, the dependent variable. Independent variable is the thing that you're manipulating to, to the, the cause, so to speak. The dependent variable is the effect. And then you're also supposed to have controls, you know, to, to make sure that the experiments, you know, that there's not other factors that could be influencing it. Um, you generate a hypothesis, you, you test using your independent variable, uh, dependent variable, try to see if your cause, cause is creating the effect. If it doesn't, you rework your hypothesis, you keep doing that until you, you know, if it works out, you have a theory. If you don't, it basically starting back over from scratch. And this is not being done in virology? No. no. No, they don't adhere to it at all. But because they might they might argue that they do. They 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 might argue that, but that's the thing. What what mm -hmm. we do when we ask them for that independent variable, they they well, a lot of times. I actually have a friend, Dr. Jordan Grant, who has uh, mm -hmm. talked to quite a few virologists um, and microbiologists, and has actually directly asked them, "Where is your independent variable? Where are these purified, isolated particles?" No one can ever show us that. I mean, we've gone through numerous studies, numerous papers, asking them to show us because they need that independent variable. They need those particles. You know, you have to show them existing in the fluids of a human first. You can't go through and create your independent variable in a Petri dish and then try to say that that's a natural phenomenon because it's not. You've created your, your uh, effect and then assumed a cause so to speak but yeah they don't have that we've looked at their papers they don't have at any point they've never purified and isolated the virus particles i was on mercola's website once upon a time and uh, there was a video there in which they made the argument um, that yes sars-cov-2 has been isolated we can talk about that in a moment but 
what is the definition of isolation? Because there seems to be this strange kind of uh, conflict of, of definitions. I know that, uh, is it Steve Kirch? Kirsch, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. I think he's, he's, he's argued that, it's a, that people are getting caught in the definitions, but it kind of does matter right. in, in, in my view. Yeah, definitions matter. I mean, uh, when, uh, you know, layman thinks of isolation, like if, if you were to ask someone, what does it mean to isolate something? Well, it's separating something from everything else, right? Mm. Um, and and so uh, you have to take what, whatever it is, um, let's say it's a virus particle, right, in this case, and you don't have anything else with that particle. There's no other bacteria, no other, you know, potential exosomes or uh, any other microvesicular bodies within the fluid. It's only the virus particles. That would be isolation, uh, purification of isolation. Purification, having a pure form, no contaminants, gives you an isolated particle. They, they don't do that. So what their definition of isolation is, is that they just take the samples from someone and they take it away from them. That's isolated. But there's still going to be a bunch of bacteria. There could be a bunch of fungus in there. There's all the different microvesicular bodies, exosomes, all those, uh, you know, other components are going to be within that sample along with the theoretical virus that is in there. So it's not isolated. It's in there with a bunch of other things. And then, you know, we can go into it later if you want, but then they put it through the whole cell culture process, which, again, is the very um, against the very definition of purification isolating because they're adding a whole bunch of substances to the sample. In other words, not isolated, not separated from everything else. It's actually mixed with a bunch of other stuff. But to me, play devil's advocate. There are a bunch of papers, and let's let's use SARS-CoV-2 as the example. But sure. I suppose the principle runs across the board. But there are a bunch of papers that claim SARS-CoV-2 has been isolated. Right. Yeah, they put isolated in the title, and that, that's what they're doing. So in their mind, if they take a sample from someone and they put it through their cell culture process, and uh, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the cell culture process, but what they're doing, um, just for a quick breakdown, so they'll take, you know, like the lung fluid of someone, and they'll put it in what they call viral transport media normally, like almost immediately, and this is a fluid uh, that contains different antibiotics, antifungals. It'll contain um, fetal bovine serum, so blood from a baby cow. Um, they'll have what they call minimal uh, essential media in there as well, so different um, nutrients, chemicals, all that fun stuff. So that's just to transport the sample to do the culture. Then they'll have a culture of a cell. Normally, in the case, since we're using SARS-CoV-2, we'll just uh, say what they use. They use Vero cells, which are cells from a monkey kidney. And so that cell in and of itself is also in different antibiotics, antifungals, fetal bovine serum, all those chemicals as well. And so what they do is they take the sample that's mixed with a bunch of substances, some, I can't even talk, substances, I told you, I, I fumble my words all the time. And they put it in with the cell, and then they incubate that, and they look for what they call the cytopathogenic effect. And they'll incubate it over a few days, 
Sometimes they do what they call passaging, where they'll um, uh, let it incubate and then take the top layer, put in another culture, add more uh, fluids and things like that. And they wait until they start seeing the cell break down. And so this effect called the cytopathogenic effect um, is essentially a cell dying and it will break down into different parts. And when they see that, they see a pattern, they say, well, that's the virus that did that. They can't see the virus, but they assume if they see that breakdown, that that was a virus that caused it. Not all the other chemicals, not all the other additives or anything else that was potentially within that sample, it had to have been a virus. So, so, you, so you're saying it's not that they Yeah, so you're saying they're making uh, big jumps here. Yeah, it's big leaps in logic. I mean, they're basically creating a soup of a whole bunch of different material, a whole bunch of different RNA, you know, DNA, uh, you know, human sample, animal samples, uh, just a mixture of a whole bunch of things and put in a Petri dish and then claiming that's isolation after they see this uh, cytopathogenic effect. If they see that, then the experiment is successful. They've isolated their virus. Um, normally, they'll, you know, if they do electron micrograph images, they'll take the supernatant from that cell culture, again, that top layer, and they'll image that. But again, it's a mixture of a whole bunch of different, you know, foreign substances, contaminants, potentially things like that. And they'll sit there and sift through until they find the particle that they want or that they claim. You know, they have an idea. In the case of a coronavirus, they're looking for a circle with a bunch of little spikes around it. And so they're looking through this to see if they can find the particle that matches their their what they have in mind. Does that make sense? It does, but it's all it's all backwards. Yeah. And it is because I, I, ideally hmm. what they would do is they would, you know, if they were going to do it properly, they would take that fluid sample from a sick patient and they would put it through there. There's methods that they're supposed to use. So there's uh, centrifugation, filtration. Uh, they can use precipitation, uh, different purification methods. They're called purification methods that they can put a sample through before culturing and They'll put it through a, a sucrose density gradient, centrifuge, uh, spin it really fast. And, and when they do that, the particles will you know, line up in a band. And based on a certain band where it lies up in the test tube, they are supposed to be able to find the virus particles. It's normally a mixture of a bunch of things, but that's what they say. So then they can take a pipette, like a little uh, thing, and, and suck out the virus particles put that under a microscope and look at it that way. But they don't do that. They, they take the sample and just add it to the cell culture and then look through the cell culture. It sounds so, so yeah, it sounds so theatrical and fraudulent. I mean, the, you're, not, you're not suggesting that virologists um, are deliberately trying to lie or make up th something i mean they're not necessarily bad people surely right no no i wouldn't claim any of them are bad people i don't try to to speak of their motives and, and everything because mm. you know they're taught a certain method you know that, that's been developed through um decades 
and and so it's easy to get you know when you go through any sort of training or education it's easy to not you know you're not taught to ask questions most of the time it's just you know repeating memorization going through the methods and things like that and so you know i have friends that are doctors that um have woken up to the the the, the fact that viruses don't exist but they all say that um you know at one, we've all believed it at one point in time right and through their own training uh they were not taught to question this stuff it's just accepted as fact you know this is the way it is this is how you're supposed to do it this is the technique go from there and so mm. they, they learn a, a certain process uh that they've been taught and they don't question that process now i do have a friend um i'm not sure if you're familiar with mike danio he was a, a former scientist com- you know he's, he's coming he's, he's coming onto my show is he oh that's amazing yeah, and, and he, he's just a wealth of information, but, you know, you'll, you'll hear about his experience. But, um, you know, he even, uh, you know, believed in these methods, worked with viruses, things like that. And, and um, eventually he started questioning it. And mm. a lot of them, unfortunately, don't get to that point. They don't, they don't question it. They, they just trust that what they were taught, um, what their, their textbooks say or what the manuals, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of microbiologists who, um, when asked for proof, they, they throw out pages from their manuals. They'll say, well, look here, this is the method. This is what we're supposed to do. They don't question, you know, the foundation of where that method came from. How, how was it developed? You know, what is the evidence behind that? How is it validated? It's just, it's not, it's a questioning process. They're, they're unfortunately indoctrinated into believing a a certain system. Uh, David Resnick, uh, who, I think you might know he's he's yeah. well versed in um in HIV and AIDS. Uh he he refers to it as the tyranny of dogma. Mm. That's a good description for it. It is. It's uh it's almost um you know, it's like a religion. It's a a, a blind faith, you know, that you you can't see these things, but um they they believe in them even without questioning or or going back through the the foundational evidence for how things mm. got to this point and that that to me was really important when i started looking into this was okay you know i can go back and um read you know with the last 10 years but that's not good enough this has been going on since you know the late 1800s well even before that but at least as far as viruses uh they were you know kind of started being um, more discussed and theorized in the early 1900s and so I wanted to look back at that foundational evidence and see where this came from, where these claims came from. Uh, I know uh, a lot of people don't do that, you know, and it's sad. We, we've lost that ability to to question and uh, look back at the sources and, and see if what we are told is actually, in fact, true or if it even, you know, holds up to logic. Uh, you were talking about the foundations. Um and I guess that's a great segue um, into Cox postulates, the the, the phrase that yeah. people have seen that's you know seen around the internet lately. What are they? Well, they're they're four to me. They're logic based, four logic based rules um, that Robert uh, Koch, Koch, however you want to pronounce it, I always mispronounce it, but um, he devised. I believe it was in the late eighteen hundreds. Um, for uh, proving that a specific microorganism causes disease. 
Um, so there's four of them. The first one being that uh, the microorganism in question must only be found in people who are sick, not in those who are healthy, right? Which makes sense. If you're, if you're going to find something and, and you think it causes disease, you shouldn't find it in healthy people because then it's not making them sick, you know. Um, the second postulate was that it has to be grown, and, and at the time these were developed as for bacteria, but that it has to be grown in a pure culture, in a pure state, right? So you have only that bacteria um, that you've cultured, and that's all your, you, so you technically have an independent variable. You have purified, isolated bacteria. You can use it to see if it causes your uh, assumed disease. The third is that you can take that pure culture and introduce it into an, a susceptible host. So like an animal or a human, but they were doing animals at the time. And that by doing so, you create the same exact disease that you, you found in the original host. So, you know, you want to be able to recreate those same symptoms, that same process. Um, and then the last is that you then from that sickened, the newly sickened host, if you've recreated the disease, you can re-isolate the same microorganism. You can re-isolate, re-purify that same organism and then use that again to infect another animal. So it's supposed to, you know, continue on, go on and on and prove that you can carry on this chain of transmission showing that the thing that you started with actually did cause disease. So it's just a logical process and it is very similar to the scientific method in that it requires that what you're studying physically exists. You can see it, you can isolate it um, in a pure state and use that to infect and cause this, the effect that you're looking for. But they don't use that anymore. <laughs> they don't, but then they talk about them. I don't know if you, you're familiar with like uh, the... Um, the original SARS-CoV-2 papers, uh, the Zhu or Wu, I don't know exactly how to pronounce the names, but um, they admitted to not fulfilling them. They admitted they could not fulfill Koch's postulates, uh, particularly in causing disease in animals. They had never shown that. Um, you know, you could say they didn't really purify and isolate it either, but they admitted there are two separate papers. I, I can't remember the exact authors, but there's there's four studies that I considered like the foundational uh, SARS-CoV-2 studies, and in two of those they admitted they could not fulfill Koch's postulates and that they still needed to be fulfilled. So it's weird when you when you talk to virologists, microbiologists, and you challenge them on this, they'll say things like they're outdated, we don't use those anymore. Um, you know, Koch, uh, Koch um, disproved his own postulates because of asymptomatic carriers, things along those lines. So they make excuses for it, but I've found numerous in instances, even the, the World Health Organization, saying that in order to prove a pathogen causes disease, you must fulfill those postulates, and they've never done that. Just for SARS-CoV-2 or for any contagion? Oh, any of them, yeah. I mean, they, they should be able to fulfill them for any. I mean, they, they tried to make the case um, with the original SARS, Mm. Uh, back in 2003, they tried to make the case that they did fulfill uh, Koch's postulates, uh, but they didn't. They actually went around it instead of doing the four Koch's postulates. They tried to satisfy um, Thomas Rivers' postulates. So 
he was a prominent virologist in the, in the 1920s, 1930s, and he went through uh, and revised Koch's postulates to make it a little easier, like give some wiggle room to the virologist to, to try and fulfill Koch's postulates because he even admitted that uh, Koch's postulates could not be fulfilled. They, they just had never done them for viruses. And so he tried to create his own set of criteria based on Koch's postulates. And even within the paper in 2003, where they claimed to have fulfilled Koch's postulates, they did not fulfill Koch's postulates and they could not fulfill Rivers' postulates either. So they failed on you know, both accounts, even though they tried to claim that they had satisfied them. They didn't even recreate the disease. You know, which is a pretty prominent thing. If you're if you're going to say mm-hmm. that uh, whatever it is you're claiming is isolated causes the same disease, and you can't create that same disease in an animal, right there you failed already. I did say contagion though, uh, to uh, include non-viruses. I'm sorry, what's that? No, oh, I said it I, should be used for like bacteria and, yes, and different yes. things like that. Yeah, I mean, that's what they were. They were originally developed for bacteria, um, which is why I go back to, uh, you know, the, the one of their arguments for why Koch's postulates is not valid is because they say Koch, um, I believe it was with tuberculosis, but it might have been cholera. One of them, he uh, found the, the bacteria in healthy subjects. And so he went around his first postulate and said, well, you know, it can be found in both sick and healthy. That's where the whole idea of the asymptomatic carrier came in. But um, again, logically, if something is going to cause disease, you're not going to find it in healthy organism because then they're never going to be having, like, uh, it goes into the whole antibody theoretical, you know, um, theory of antibodies is that, uh, you have this response, your body responds to a pathogen, you know, whether you express symptoms such as like coughing, sweating, vomiting, you know, any of those symptoms that that means that your body is responding to something, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't have that, if you're carrying this bacteria or this virus and you don't have an immune response, then how do you clear that out of your system? Are you just a carrier the rest of your life? Are you going around infecting people left and right or is it that the thing that they're finding within you is not causing disease your body is not trying to rid itself of it because it's not pathogenic but what about the argument that could be made well uh they're dormant you know hiv can take 10 years or you have what what's that what's that new one long COVID. yeah long COVID. i mean they they have their escape clauses and Mm. and different things like that but um the, the the idea that these things are dormant and, and not pathogenic, I mean, um, I believe it was, so let's just go back to tuberculosis. Like 90% of cases of tuberculosis are asymptomatic, and people will go through life having this bacteria within them, never becoming sick. So are these people just that healthy that their body is taking care of this path- potential pathogen in them? They're not developing the symptoms of tuberculosis? And, you know, maybe one day they're going to develop sickness from it if the conditions are right. Or is it that tuberculosis, the bacteria itself, is not the actual cause of the symptoms that are being associated with it? So, I mean, they, they've created this idea that these viruses can sleep or hibernate or, you know, 
go inside of you, but then that kind of, uh, you know, blows up the whole immune system. I mean, what's it, it's not doing its job then. How, how is it not finding these things and, and expel, express or expelling them from it, the body? Well, because if you can get long COVID, then you can get sneaky cancer. (laughs) Medium term cancer. It's so ridiculous that they add these timelines to to these things. Yeah, they they do. Well, and that's that's the problem. Like their their stories just get crazier and crazier as it goes Mm. on. Um, You know, uh, now I, I just made a joke when this whole monkeypox thing started. I'm like, well, Pretty soon here, we're going to start hearing about asymptomatic monkeypox cases. And lo and behold, in 2019, a study came out saying that there are asymptomatic cases of monkeypox. And it's like, it's so ridiculous at that point that, you know, they're they're literally attacking healthy people. Anyone who is healthy, you're you're supposed to fear, Mm -hmm. right? You, You can't be around someone. Um, now they're having people afraid of close contact. Close, I mean, they were already afraid because of COVID, but now with monkeypox, it's apparently now become a sexually transmitted disease. Um, even though, you know, in its history since it was discovered in 1970, has never spread that way. But apparently, gay men are spreading monkeypox through through sex, and and they they don't even have a history of travel to the countries where. Monkeypox is said to occur, and so there's their stories just get more and more outrageous as, as time goes on. And the, I mean, well, the latest, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, viruses have become bigoted. <laughs> I guess, um, but I mean, that's 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 the the thing. I mean, uh, I so the the latest one I heard, um, I don't know if you heard about this one, was the the strawberries giving people hepatitis A. Yeah, so organic and it's organic strawberries. Just just so you're aware, organic strawberries um, were recalled in Walmart and all these other places because people like I think it was 17 people came down with hepatitis A symptoms, and so it just it just becomes so outlandish. I mean, yeah, they can create uh, you know stories around these potential outbreaks or their you know. Things they're discovering through epidemiological, epidemiological studies, um, and try to correlate them. But is that the most logical, uh, you know, route of infection? Is that someone is eating a strawberry with hepatitis A on it, or could it be that you know maybe there were some different pesticides on there that got into them and, and caused them to be sick, or maybe it had nothing to do with the strawberries at all? You know, it could have been an environmental. I think most of them came from California. Maybe there's some vi- environmental toxin in California that they were overlooking, or maybe there's some emotional stressors. I don't know. You know, they don't look at other factors. It always becomes, it's this invisible virus. Uh, that's the cause. It's the one cause causing the disease. Let's stick with that. Let's not and then, look out. And then let's give you this pill and this vaccine. Mm, exactly. The, oh, I mean, yeah, with monkey, I, I can't imagine what the strawberry hepatitis A vaccine will be. But, you know, the, uh, the monkey pox, uh, is uh, the vaccine is the smallpox vaccine, the same one. Um, they, they claim that it works for both. Uh, that vaccine itself is considered the most dangerous vaccine known to man. So, uh, you know, people are sadly not going to know this, that, you know, it's been so long since smallpox or anything was around, and that they're, they're going to generate enough fear in people 
that they might line up and get injected with this thing. Or they also have, you know, I believe there was another one that uh, was uh, approved. I don't know if it was approved or cleared, whatever language they use by the FDA um, for specifically for monkeypox, which is some sort of tissue cell culture goo again, basically being injected in a person. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that's the ultimate goal is just to get more jabs in, into people, unfortunately. There's a weird kind of um, extension of logic here because if if no virus has been shown to directly cause disease or or this, you know the the proposed illness, right? Then then what the hell are people being vaccinated against over the last hundred years? Right. Like, what are they being vaccinated? I mean, yeah. That, I mean, if there's if there's no like, virus, yeah. Well, that's that's just it. That that they've convinced people that they need an injection, which, you know, they they've convinced us that our bodies um, cannot handle uh, disease, or, or basically they they've convinced us that these normal detoxification symptoms we all go through them. Uh, you know, the same symptoms as the flu. Uh, most people get it during the winter time. Um, it's just the body going through its cleanse, trying to get rid of the toxins. But they've convinced us that these are a bad thing, that they, that you need, you, your body cannot handle it. It needs either a magic pill or it needs a vaccine to uh, avoid going through that. But if you look at it on the flip side and you look at these as a, a healing phase, a healing process that people go through, um, whether it's once a year or, you know, sometimes longer, um, and your body needs to express itself to get rid of those toxins and you're suppressing that, that function, then it comes back even worse. Um, so they've convinced people that something that is a good thing, uh, a, a detoxification is actually a bad thing and we need to suppress those symptoms. And, and unfortunately, most times when people do that through the medications or the vaccines, they get hit harder in the future with something even worse. The body has to get rid of those toxins somehow. And it, it might be through uh, an autoimmune disease or it might be through cancer. Somehow is going to express itself and get rid of those toxins, no matter how long you suppress it. Well, I think it's just because you feel so crap that you just want that, that feeling to go away. I mean, if, if you get, a, if you get a, a terrible headache, you know, you, you want to get rid of it. Yeah, you want that symptom relief, that, mm. just for it to yeah to go away, and it's completely understandable. Yeah, um, I you know, uh, it's not fun going through these symptoms, but your body can handle it. Like that's the one thing I've learned throughout this journey is our bodies can handle this. You know, if you allow it to heal, it will heal better than if you interfere. Um, mm. Just to give an example, um, uh, a few months ago, my wife and I both came down with. Uh, basically what you would call like COVID, you know, we had uh, congestion, uh, cough, um, really, really bad congestion, uh, cough and, and just, you know, feeling headache and um, all that fun stuff. She came down with it a a little bit before I did. um, And she wanted to start using, you know, nasal sprays and everything to try and uh, help clear up. She wanted to use Mucinex like anything that she could to, to reduce those symptoms. 
I wanted to just let my body write it out. I was like, you know what, if I interfere with this, it's not going to, uh, it's going to take longer to clear out. And sure enough, I was able to get over it in about a week, week and a half. It took her a long time, about four, four weeks, if not longer, for her body to finally stop and to get back on track. And she ended up giving up doing the medications because she realized it was just prolonging things. It wasn't really helping. So, yeah, they, they help in the short term. You know, they can help reduce the symptoms. Uh, but is it going to help you in the long term? Are you really doing your body justice by interfering with that process? Uh, in my opinion, no. I think you just got to let the process ride out. There might be cases, you know, if someone gets really, really you know, like too sick, they're at death's door and you need like an antibiotic or something mm. just to help kick them back out. And then they have to make the necessary lifestyle changes to get their body back on track, you know, get it back in balance. There may be, you know, isolated cases where that's necessary. But to me, for the most part, if you can do things, if you can allow your body to heal itself, mm. you're going to be a lot better off in the long run. Yeah, but Mike, you have now set up the gotcha. You said you, gotcha? you, you and your wife got sick at the same time. Me and I my know, wife yeah. also got sick at the same time. And there is the elephant in the room that everybody asks. And I have to ask you yeah. because that is, the, that is this weird mystery. Why does this happen? Why does it happen? I believe um, it's environmental. So um, just to give a, another example where my wife and I and our son all got sick at the same time. Uh, this was back in September of 2021. So September 2021. Um, I think, I don't know if you heard about like the forest fires and everything that were going on um, in Colorado and in Canada. There's a lot of uh, really bad forest fires. Smoke was coming through through where I live in Iowa. Um, we had horrible pollution. Like you couldn't see the, some of the buildings uh, we normally drive by downtown. You couldn't even see these tall skyscrapers. They were just covered in fog. Mm. Um, and so we were breathing this stuff in. We had some of the worst uh, air pollution quality. Like I, I always check our air quality because I, I like to keep up to date on that. Um, our air quality was progressively getting worse. Like we were... Uh, 10 times the healthy limit that we were breathing in the pollutants. And so it started with my son. He got sick. Um, he got over it within like a day or two. He felt better. Um, a few days later, my wife got sick. She went through, got better. I got it like a week later, got sick, went through, you know, my body cleansed itself. My brother and his family who also live here uh, all came down with it as well got sick, got better. So, you know, you can look at it as, oh yeah, we all got a virus, right? And one of us passed it on to the other. Or you can look at the environment at the time, we were all breathing in this toxic air. And the same symptoms that we all had was congestion as your body tries to block it out so you're not taking in all this uh, pollution that we were breathing in at the time. Um, and we were all expressing ourselves through uh, coughing up uh, a lot of mucus and phlegm and things like that. Our body was trying to get rid of the pollution that we were all um, a part of. We were all breathing in on a regular basis. And so to me, it, you, you look at it more, I look at it from an environmental standpoint. You know, we were all in the same environment. We all got sick with similar symptoms because we we're all breathing in polluted air. Someone else might sit there and say, no, you got a virus. You were passing it on back and forth, but there's no proof of the virus. There is proof that air pollution can cause disease. 
and the same symptoms that we were experiencing. But understanding that causal relationship is 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 pretty is pretty important because it changes the way in which you view health. Yeah. It's a it's a paradigm shift. You know, you have to sit there and, and um, I mean, it's it's basically you know terrain versus germ theory, right? Mm. The terrain is all about the environment. Um, it's the the internal environment, but also we're influenced by the external environment. Um, germ theory, it's always about the outside invader coming in and making you sick, and then you're going mm. and spreading that on. So it, it's just uh, two different paradigms. I subscribe to the, the terrain, more to the terrain uh, idea that we are a product of, there's many factors that go about and bring about disease, you know, both um, physical, environmental, emotional, spiritual. I mean, there's so many different factors um, that, that can play into us becoming sick. Um, that's why I've looked into the germ theory side, and the evidence just doesn't hold up. There is no proof. They, they need to have that, you know, that proof that adheres to the scientific method that has that isolated uh, independent variable and, and show that it causes disease in a natural way. They, they just don't have that. I mean, we can go through the papers. Mm -hmm. I've gone through, you know, influenza. I've gone through polio. I've gone through uh, rabies, you know, uh, HIV. All these things, the, the the evidence is just not there. They have to start with the. That's why it always goes back to that mm, question of education and isolation. If you have you don't have that evidence, then you're you know you're already start, starting off on a fraudulent basis. Well, let's talk about but evidence. It, it, just, sure. Sorry, go. Well, I was going to just no, ask just you. So, right. Yeah, yeah, go. On. Yeah, Dana. Yeah, you were you were spot on with your your you know it's it, it's that's why people. Uh, kind of clean, they get angry or they clean because we've been taught a certain way throughout our whole lives. You know, the, there's the, the, the belief that these viruses or the bacteria uh, are the source of our illness and our disease. And it's not a, not a product of our own habits or behavior and environment. And so I, I believe there's a lot of pushback because people, anytime you're um, challenging those long-held beliefs, there's that cognitive dissonance that takes place and uh, people cling even harder to those beliefs before yeah. they eventually, you know, maybe start questioning them. Well, I was just going to ask you now about, you know, evidence. When we're talking about sure. direct and indirect evidence, what do we mean? Yeah. Well, the di direct evidence would be the actual evidence of like having those physical purified isolated particles that they show cause disease so that that is the direct evidence you you can see the particles you can characterize them you can you know take em photographs of them you've you've got just those particles indirect evidence would be the cell culture so the cytopathogenic effect saying that because the soup that you create in a lab and the cell breaks down and you see a pattern in that culture that that is evidence of a virus that's not that's indirect evidence that's looking for an effect in that petri dish seeing a pattern and claiming something there you can't see that you're just assuming because that happened that the virus did that um antibody evidence so any sort of serological evidence is also indirect because 
there they are taking you know theoretical particles called antibodies again something that has never been purified and isolated they've never taken you know the the blood of a of a human and found those uh, y-shaped particles in the blood they just don't do it it started off as an idea um, so you, they're taking one theoretical fictional entity and antibodies and claiming that those reactions they get with those antibodies are proof of this other fictional entity so that's another form of indirect evidence does that make sense the yeah. other one or two others really quickly would be electron microscope imaging or microscope imaging because it would be direct evidence if they had the particles that were purified and isolated but if they're just taking um images from the cell culture soup that contains so many other microorganisms uh, in there and just picking out, we, we call it the point and declare. My friend, George, Dr. Jordan Grant, it's the point and declare method. You look for the particle that ha is the representation of the virus that you want and you declare that as the case. But there are so many instances where you can, just for SARS-CoV-2, you can go through and find uh, papers challenging uh, images that are said to be SARS-CoV-2. They'll say uh, it's a, a SARS-CoV-2 particle that they found in kidney tissue cultures. Another paper will come out and say, no, that wasn't SARS-CoV-2. It was what they call clarinth-coated vesicles. Or another one will say, no, it's a microvesicular body. Another one will come out and say, it's a rough endoplasmic reticulum. Exact same particle. Looks exactly like a SARS-CoV-2 particle, right? But it's not. It's mm -hmm. all these other things. So they, they don't have, you know, images of just a, a purified, isolated coronavirus particle. It's always a mixture of a whole bunch of things. And it's all dependent on the interpretation of the person looking at the, the images. And then the last uh, thing of indirect evidence would be the, the genome, you know. The, yes, the, the I haven't got that yet. Yeah, the, the ACTGs in the computer database, you know, the random... A theoretical model of a, a virus. So again, it's, you know, what is a genome? It's just uh, something that's uh, created in a computer database. Um, it's put into a model and it's supposed to represent uh, the thing that's never been seen in reality. So it's just another form of indirect evidence uh, saying that these particles exist when they've never shown those particles to exist. Sorry, that's a long-winded, uh, you know, Ex no, explanation of it's good would be direct versus indirect you you jumped the gun because i was still going to ask you about <laughs> about genomes uh but we'll come yeah, back to that in a second Let, let's just yeah. could you take a moment to ask you a question from tamara who's watching right now from greece sure um and she she wants to know have you seen stefan lanker's work on setting up a real control for virus isolation yes yes i have seen i've, I've seen it. i'm familiar with it i Sadly, I have not gone like in depth with his um, experiments. I do know that he was able to, you know, essentially recreate the cytopathogenic effects in a cell culture without virus material being present. You know, he, he varied the, the conditions, like the amount of antibiotics they used, the amount of uh, fetal bovine serum, um, the, the different nutrients. Uh, throughout and, and incubate them. And eventually, I know in one of the phases, he added um, yeast RNA into 
the culture. And they, he was essentially, he was able to reproduce the same effect as they claim SARS-CoV-2 does when they put the sample from a sick human in the culture. So um, he, he even was able to, I, I haven't seen the data on this yet. I'm just basing it off of the claims, but he was able to generate genomes uh, for basically any virus, like up to like, I think 98 or 99% accuracy, um, the genomes for like HIV, measles, and all this stuff just from yeast RNA from this. But yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty damning. I mean, if, if um, virology did these type of controls that Stefan Lanka himself is doing, it immediately disproves their methods. But they that, that's the, the problem. And that's what he's been a champion of is calling out the lack of controls, the proper controls, I mean, for this, uh, this process that they, they use. So is genome sequencing essentially theater? In my opinion, yes. I mean, it, it's taking, I always look at it as it's like um, you're you have an idea of something like an image and um, you're shattering it into a bunch of random pieces um, and then asking someone to recreate. I'm, I'm horrible with analogies, by the way, so I'm trying to do this off the cuff, but trying to put this puzzle together of this picture with random pieces. And it's going to be different every time because no, like if you tell, Oh, I had a friend who had this really great analogy. Basically, it's like taking the Empire State Building and um, blowing it up or trying to recreate it from a pile of rubble, basically. But in that scenario, you actually know what the Empire State Building looks like, right? Um, and with virology, they don't know what the virus looks like. They don't know what the genome is. They're just putting it together into a computer and creating a theoretical model of what they assume the virus would look like. It's sort of, sort of like dinosaurs, isn't it? They find a couple of bones and then they construct the entire thing and then you have Jurassic Park where you even know what it sounded like. Exactly, yeah. And, and then you look into it and like 90% uh, of it is plaster, <laughs> like just a, a mold that they used. And uh, it's a great example because I mean, look at the dinosaurs. I mean, they start off as these uh giant reptiles and now they're starting to try and say they're birds <laughs> they've got feathers all over them and everything i mean they just the story changes with however you know whatever they want to come up with but yeah it is it's just um you know you have an, a, a piece and then you create um this idea of what you think this thing looks like without ever actually seeing it i said i was going to horse you um, back to antibodies, just for the sake sure. of clarity, would you mind elaborating on what an antibody is? Because apparently everybody has them now and we have herd immunity. Yeah, it seems that way. But then, you know, they were continually saying that that wasn't the case, that you can't get natural antibodies. And it just goes back and forth. They change their story all the time. But yeah, antibodies are supposedly uh, proteins in the body that respond to the um, the antigen or the, the virus. You know, when the virus is in you, your body is supposed to produce these substances. I believe they've determined that they come from the plasma cells. And your body makes these antibodies. They, they are smaller than the virus, but they attach mm -hmm. to the, the parts of the virus to try and 
break it down and clear it out of your body, so to speak. And so they they claim that if they can measure these things within a person, you know, you find enough in them through their tests that you're immune or you have some sort of immunity. They don't know how long or how much antibodies you need to get that immunity, but it's supposedly a good sign, right? Mm. That's that's what they say. Unless you're HIV positive, then it means you're dead. You're going to die, basically. Okay, so then the the counter question would be okay but we see a lot of these um in people who perhaps were ill with the right. with, the, yeah. with a particular set of symptoms right yes yeah, so you can find but you can also find them in people who weren't ill you can find them in completely healthy people and that's that's the problem is that the tests i mean they they claim you know pcr is supposedly the top of the line the, the test that's um you know, the most accurate, which we can, you know, talk about that and its problems at length. But antibodies are, they admit that the tests aren't that accurate. You know, they, they uh, have outright come in, out and said that they um, generate a lot of false results. So it, the problem is if you can find these antibodies, they're, they're not specific. You can find them in healthy people. You can find them in non-healthy people. I've seen studies where like for measles, for instance, they were looking at people that uh, children that never had any contact with measles whatsoever, never vaccinated, never around anyone, never had it. They had antibodies to measles. How did that happen? Or they found people that had measles or were vaccinated for it, zero antibodies. And so they, they claim a lot of times that these things are specific and that the they have meaning, um, but you when you go through the literature, when you go through the the studies, there first of all, antibodies. If we're going to go all the way back, they're basically just a theory, an idea that was created in the late nineteen late eighteen hundreds, early nine nineteen uh, hundreds. Um, it was a basically a, you know a, a way to explain chemical reactions between human blood and animal blood that they were doing in a lab. There, there had been something in that those those reactions causing those reactions. So they, they created a theoretical idea of what was within the blood that was causing these reactions to happen. Um, and so it, it's, it's, again, something that has never been properly purified and isolated. They've never been proven to exist. So even if you were to believe that the tests were accurate, what were they validated and calibrated against? Because they've never had these particles, these antibodies separated from everything else in order to develop accurate tests. Same thing with, you know, the viruses with SARS-CoV-2. They've never had purified and isolated particles, SARS-CoV-2 particles. They can't calibrate and validate these tests because they don't have that physically there. They're not going to be accurate. Yeah, and I think PCR has become a swear word in the last couple of years. Um, but what's interesting um, is if you look at the use of PCR back in the HIV days as well, and already then there were scientists saying something is wrong. Yeah. And they were ignored. Well, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, Kerry Mollis, you know, mm. the inventor of PCR, he was very adamant that it shouldn't be used that way. That, uh, you know, if you do it uh, long enough or you do it right enough... Uh, I believe it, I don't know his exact words, but it's something along the lines like there's 
not a single molecule that we all don't have at least one of in our body. And so if you do PCR properly, you can find it in someone. You're going to you're going to find it. Now finding that particle or that molecule whatever it is doesn't mean that you're sick, it doesn't mean you're infected, it doesn't mean you're going to die. It basically means nothing. It's just that they found something in someone based on that test, which is technically just like a, a DNA Xerox machine anyways. But just to clarify, he invented PCR, but the protocol was invented by uh, Drosten. The the one for the SARS-CoV-2? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Without, uh, are you talking, yeah. So, yeah, Drosten was the one who created the, the, um, the design for the assays for the PCR test to determine someone uh, positive or negative. Um, he did that without having any sort of virus available there were no isolates he he claimed it was off of social media reports that he was able to determine it was a coronavirus and i believe they used um just the the genome that was submitted um to social media to create this test which you know obviously you're creating uh it was done in silico so it's computer generated um they, they were the idea was to create a test without virus material available, um, which they did. They created a test. Was it accurate? Well, I mean, uh, this, the Drosten test and the, the CDC test, when they were doing this um, uh, experiment to see how accurate these PCR tests were, both of those tested positive with water. Like they called water SARS-CoV-2 positive. So that, that kind of gives you an idea of how accurate these tests were. And both the CDC and the, P, the, the Drosen were uh, created without any sort of virus isolate available. And of course, there was no corruption going on in that process. I mean, he, he, he gave the paper to the WHO and 48 hours later it was peer-reviewed yeah. and then published that exactly. week. Perfectly normal yeah. science, isn't it? Exactly. Yep, that's how it's supposed to work. <laughs> rush, it, rush it through. But yeah, there was a, a really great review um, back in, I think it was November of 2020. Um, there was a group Coleman. of, uh, mm. yeah, the, the Drosten. Mm. They broke it down perfectly. I can't remember all the points that they made, but I mean, they tore that test apart. And I think there were like 21 to... of them, 21 authors, I think, or something like that. Yeah. And they, like they, that. Su- and they submitted it to Eurosurveillance, but it was rejected. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. They, they tried to get it published. I mean, it was uh, these people that are highly respected in their fields, you know, um, they should be listened to. But because it challenged uh, the narrative at the time, they don't get a voice. It's that's that's why our, our, our system is broken. The peer review system is a joke. You know, um, it's basically uh, if your findings contradict with what the mainstream narrative is, you're not going to get it published. You're not. You're, you're not going to um, see your work or have your work shown to others. Uh, there was a uh, recent study, basically another one that was destroying the PCR test, the results, basically saying that it wasn't a viral pandemic. We had a testing pandemic mm. that was going on. And they tried to submit it to the Lancet. Nothing happened. But it was a perfectly well, uh, you know, a condu- well-conducted study, but they were rejected and they they can't get their work published and it's frustrating because if we were going to be um you know real science it needs to be challenged right there Mm -hmm. has to be both sides and 
that that's how the ideas are formed. We're created by challenging and making sure that the hypothesis stick, that the theories work and things like that. We don't have that. It's it's just a, a consensus, you know, agreement among experts, um, experts, so-called experts, that this is the way it's supposed to be. And if you have the right funding, the right, you know, uh, people backing you, you're going to get your results published. If you don't or if you challenge the narrative, you're not going to it's not going to see the light of day. And there's been numerous um, studies calling out basically um, the last one or the best one I read was uh, by John Ioannidis. He's a, a really well-respected statistician. Stanford. Who, yes. And he said um, basically I think like, uh, – was at least half of everything that's published is false. He might have even gone up even higher no, than that. He, uh, it was higher. It was like 73% or something. It might have been, yeah. Really, uh, yeah. Uh, I, it's been a long time since I read that. But it, it basically showed that, you know, the, the what is being published is it's not replicable. It's not reproducible. It's it's just garbage, so to speak. And the, and the other people that are doing studies that I, I can't say, maybe they are garbage as well, but they're not at least getting mm. the airtime just because it contradicts with what uh, the mainstream narrative is. But what about... But they're not getting the choice or the chance. What about all those anecdotes? Um, like they got sick and they took ivermectin and it worked. Well, it's just another indirect... Um, uh, just because a drug works doesn't mean that it proves a virus is a cause, right? I mean, anytime you can suppress symptoms uh, with a drug... Um, you're looking at an effect and trying to determine a cause based on that effect. What you're showing is that the drug helped to reduce symptoms. It doesn't mean that it stopped the virus. Does that make sense? It's mm. just a, it's another indirect way of trying to make the claim that a virus exists through an effect created by an antibiotic or um, uh, ivermectin. Isn't that a horse uh, parasite drug? Don't fall into that trap because um, it's been successfully used on billions of people. <laughs> What's that? Um, the that? Yeah. It's been used well, around the world for various things yeah. uh, on, on people. Yeah. Yeah, it, it can at, at points, but it also has many numerous side effects. And mm. so just because something stops symptoms doesn't mean that it's actually a benefit to the person. And Okay, but... I mean, sorry, Mike, but I mean, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to play devil's advocate here, but sure. can you, is there not something to be said about the predictability of taking a particular drug like ivermectin um, and it seems to have predictable results across a spectrum of people with similar symptoms? You would have to, I mean, it has to depend on the study and mm. look at the controls, you know. Um, what if they were given, I haven't actually looked into the studies for ivermectin, I'll just be honest, but what were they tested with? Like, was there a placebo group? Was it just, a, was it like a saline solution or something? Or was it um, another drug? Were they comparing drug against drug? You know, I know at one time they were comparing mm. ivermectin uh, hydroxychloroquine and um, what was the other one? Rem remdesivir, right? They were trying to compare these different drugs and say, I, I think they were trying to throw remdesivir under the bus and say, you know, it's toxic and stuff like that. Don't go with that. Go with ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. Those shown work. But um, 
what were they what were the controls what were the comparisons for what were the conditions of the people and what were what was it treating i mean uh again it boils down to whether or not there is a virus i mean do you believe that these drugs are targeting a virus or are they just helping to suppress some symptoms mm. it just you... it goes back to belief and the so... evidence is that there is no virus does what you've been speaking about regarding virology also apply to animals as far as like um if uh viruses exist for animals or if they yes. should be vaccinated and all Correct. that stuff yes oh yeah no absolutely applies to them there's, there's no animal viruses um, well for example parvo for example parvo is something that's or let's say parvo and rabies those are the two big ones for dogs right um, I haven't looked into Parvo. Uh, I've looked into rabies, Louis Pasteur's, uh, you know, research into that, which mm. um, ended up uh, showing that much of his work was fraudulent mm. um, in, in regards to rabies. Um, I, it was a while ago that I looked into it, but um, I believe, if I remember correctly, it was some really uh, inhumane, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, like conditions that he was putting these dogs through. And the substances that he was using were highly toxic, um, and he didn't have proper controls. Um, a lot of times, he's very secretive with his work and wouldn't let others see it. Um, but when you look into rabies, too, uh, again, this is another situation where many people who are bit by a rabid dog, right, don't go on to have symptoms, even if they're not treated, like the vast majority. And so the actual vaccine. Uh, that is used for rabies can cause the exact symptoms that are associated with the disease. So it's another situation of um, is the vaccine creating the disease that it's trying to treat for? So um, everything I've seen with rabies has been fraudulent. But yeah, I, I always recommend if people ask me if they should be vaccinating their, their animals or you know, things like don't don't do it. You're poisoning them just as we are being poisoned. Since monkeypox is in the news right now, um, you know, monkeypox itself was not found in wild monkeys. It was lab monkeys, monkeys that were used for polio vaccine research. And so these were monkeys that were being, you know, held captive out of their normal environment. They're being experimented on um, and it, they didn't even develop um, polio or polio. Sorry. Uh, monkeypox right away. It was like 50 or 60 days after they were found, or they're not found, but given to the, the, the research institute. Um, and so then they were poisoned with antibiotics, and uh, some of them got sick, and they had some symptoms, and they claimed it was a virus that they must have gotten outside, but then they couldn't figure out, well, if it was something that they got out in the wild, how did it take so long for them to become sick? Why did it take almost two months for them to develop symptoms? They've never seen any of these pox viruses have that kind of um, incubation period. And the other problem was they found, so they looked for particles, you know, that whole point and declare thing and the, the tissue cultures and um, everything. They found the same exact particles in healthy monkeys. So again, you're not satisfying Koch's postulates. Mm -hmm. You're finding the thing that you think is the cause of disease in both the healthy monkeys and the sick monkeys. They didn't look at any factors outside. They just thought it was a virus. They didn't look at the condition of the monkeys, what they were being subjected to, the, the different vaccines, the antibiotics, 
all being in, you know, in, in captivity. So they found sick monkeys in captivity, but when they tried to look in the wild, they couldn't find monkeys with the same symptoms. What does all this talk about biolabs and mm. you know, releasing viruses? And like, yeah, you had Eventua one and you had this monkeypox event last year that correlated yeah. with what's happened now. What's going on? Yeah, I, well, I think it's just, um, it's a part of that fear campaign, the fear propaganda to keep people believing in the the virus lie, you know, or the threat that at any time something pathogenic or, you know, another pandemic can break out at any moment. Um, with the gain of function, it's basically the same cell culture crap that I was talking about earlier. They don't ever isolate or purify any sort of virus. They, they don't take pictures of, you know, you'd think if they could actually grow these viruses and it was just those and they can genetically engineer them and create more of them that way, that they could eventually take purified, isolated particles from those that they created and image them, but they don't. They, I've never seen any images from these studies that, I, that I've looked into. Um, and so to me, uh, it's just uh, this narrative, at least recently with the whole gain of function bioweapon thing, I think was designed to get people who are questioning the official narrative that there was this, you know, virus that broke out in Wuhan and the, the animal market or whatever, eating bats or I don't know what it was, snakes, somehow some exotic animal that someone ate and then spread it to other humans or they were all eating. So if it's not that, then you rope them back in with, well, it wasn't natural. So it's got to be some sort of man-made lab created virus. And so, uh, I've, I've seen that narrative go around trying to, to rope people back into believing in the, the virus lie. Yeah, it's the, it's the false binary. You keep people within a particular set of um, conversations so that they don't go beyond that, or uh, let's say the Overton window. You keep them in there. Yeah, exactly. You don't allow the questions that actually matter. Absolutely. And so I've, I've kind of looked at, and I'm not going to ever speak to anyone's motives because um, I, I can't speak for them, but I've seen a lot of people in like the, the alternate or the truth community that are pushing these ideas out there. Yeah, well, no, it's not a, a real you know virus in nature, but you, there is this bioweapon component or it was released from a lab or uh, something like that. First of all, it gives legitimacy to something called COVID-19. Well, mm. COVID-19 is just the same symptoms of disease we've seen throughout, you know, forever. It goes from no symptoms to allergies, to the cold, to the flu, to pneumonia. It's all wrapped into one thing. So there is no COVID. There's no specific symptom that defines COVID. And there's um, also no flu, just to add to that. Oh, it, exactly. Yeah, they're all just names for a detoxification process, mm. basically, is what I'm getting at. It's the same symptoms, just mm. on a continuum. Um, but in any case, um, so... I look at these narratives as um, these people are like, like the Pied Pipers trying to bring the, you know, the people back into the fold, so to speak. In front of you, there's a crystal ball. What do you see? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I am hopeful. I, I am hopeful because I, I believe more and more people are, are becoming aware that something is not right, you know, that, that, the, the 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 story that we have been told doesn't add up and so more more people are questioning this narrative 
And I, I do believe the longer it goes on, the longer they drag on uh, COVID-19, the longer we start seeing, um, you know, strawberry hepatitis viruses or monkeypox viruses, tomato flus, all these things, the, the crazier the story gets, the more it's going to wake people up and they're going to start questioning this. Um, and so that's why it was important to me to do this blog. I, I never really set out to do this in the first place. I was just uh, actually started on Facebook, just trying to help share information with my friends and family. And it kind of took on a life of its own. And, and eventually through the censorship at Facebook, I was like, well, I, I need to share this information elsewhere. And so that's why I created the blog. And I, I wanted a place where people could come to when they start to question it. And I'm not telling people to just read what I write and believe it as the truth, but hopefully they can use it as a springboard. They can look at the evidence for themselves mm. and um, you know, start questioning things and come to their own conclusions. But I do believe that we're on this path. More doctors are waking up, more microbiologists, you know, people that are in the field are starting to speak out. And uh, to me, that's exciting. I think if we're going to challenge this and if we're going to change this paradigm, now is the right time. You know, you got to strike while the iron is hot. And so I do, I am hopeful. I, I think we're on the right track. It might be slow, but I think we're, we're heading in the right direction. Where can people follow your work, Mike? Oh, sure. <laughs> you want me to pronounce it or spell it? Um, so virology, virology.com, uh, V-I-R-O. L-I-E-G-Y, virology.com. You can find my work there. Um, I've tried to lay it out in a way that makes it easy for people to, to follow. Um, and um, I've got an introductory page, which I know you were using for this to, to try and help guide people. Um, and the nice thing about this is it's there's actually kind of been a community that's been forming through the, the mm. comments sections too. And so I try to be available if people have questions or if they even want to challenge me or anything. I'm always available to talk or to answer questions. So you can find me there. Um, Virology is also on um, Telegram. So I have a Telegram channel as well. Speaking so of which, I think, I think I found you in my Telegram channel once upon a time. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> was, we, were, we were debating someone, weren't we? Well, uh, well, I, you were. You were. Yeah. Yeah, I was. <laughs> I was. Uh, it was an interesting conversation, but yeah, I believe that's how, how we found each other was through that. I appreciate all the work you've been doing and, and thank you for giving people uh, a chance to speak out and to have a voice in this because it's, it's not easy, but people like you are allowing us to get out there and s spread this message. So I really appreciate that. Takes two to tango, Mike. It's fun tango. <laughs> I'm not a very good dancer, but, but yes, uh, we'll... We'll tango. Same here. So it would be, be pretty <laughs> awkward. <laughs> <laughs> and my wife yeah. won't be too happy. No, I doubt mine would be either. So <laughs> it would probably Mike's, raise my eyebrows a bit. <laughs> Mike Stone, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining me in the trenches. It's been a pleasure myself. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.